Hello, and welcome to another edition of Career Education Report. I am Jason Altmeyer, and today we are going to be talking about borrower defense to repayment, which is an enormous issue that is pending right now here in the summer of 2023. And we have someone who knows more about that regulation and was involved in the past in the Department of Education's review and writing about that than anybody. And his name is Jonathan Helwick. Many people know him as an attorney at the Dwayne Morris Law Firm specializing in a huge number of higher education issues. Many of them he worked and had oversight over at the department. In the Trump administration, he served as the attorney advisor to the undersecretary of education and special counsel at the U.S. Department of Education. And he, among other things, co-authored both the 2019 rescission of the prior gainful employment rule and the 2019 borrower defense to repayment regulations. So he is well equipped to have the conversation. And Jonathan, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Jason. And and thank you for that great introduction. Happy to be with you today. We, of course, represent, generally speaking, the proprietary sector of the career education community. And we have expressed concern about the current administration's new rule regarding borrower defense to repayment. As you know, there is an ongoing lawsuit in Texas relating to that. And given your background and the history that you have, you are called upon to comment about this. You authored a very popular opinion piece that ran uh, recently in Inside Higher Ed, a trade publication for higher education. Can you talk a little bit about just sort of the history of borrowed defense to repayment. Why does it exist right now? Well, it's been ping-ponged back and forth between Democrat and Republican administrations. You were involved in the most recent attempt before the Biden administration uh, conducted their change. Why does borrower defense exist in the first place? Thanks, Jason. Great question to get us started. So there's a, a very short little line in the Higher Education Act, which the Obama administration used as a kind of basis to respond to two really kind of catastrophic school um, closures slash failures during uh, that administration. From there, and because of the Obama administration's kind of concern about you know, similar things happening in the future and, and recouping tuition money and, and making students whole, they created this whole apparatus that we know as bar defense to repayment. They did it, unfortunately, for the community and, and for students and really for kind of like regulatory consistency. They did it um, a day or two before the 2016 election. And as a result of the way that election went, there was an administration change in January following uh, the publication of the 2016 borrowed defense rule and prior to when the rule became effective, which uh, was July 1 of 2017. Look, Elections have consequences. 
the Trump administration, the administration that I was a part of, took a different tact on borrower defense that was kind of finalized in the 2019 rule. We certainly made some changes from the Obama administration's rule. And then, of course, as I said, elections have consequences. The 2020 election created a whole new kind of rebirth of the borrower defense rule and the rule that we're here to talk about today. Can you talk about what the issues that you faced were with regard to your work during the Trump administration as it relates to some of these more comprehensive issues that you've written about relating to third-party groups filing claims, the expansion of the definition of misrepresentation and, and things like that? What are the differences between what you finalized and what's occurring now? There are a lot of differences, and, and one that I would add that I think is one of the most significant changes between not only the Trump administration rule and the Biden administration rule, but really between the Obama administration rule and the Biden administration rule, because even though it's, it's the same party, obviously, there are some pretty significant, uh, and maybe the better word for it is evolutions between the 2016 rule and the rule that's going to become effective in a little less than a month. You know, for us in the previous administration, we put an emphasis on harm and the borrower actually making a showing of harm. And that's something that we kind of struggled with because it is, it is true that the borrowers who are filing these claims, you know, are, are not typically attorneys. They didn't have the assistance from legal counsel. So it is kind of like a, it's kind of like a pro se claim. If you were getting into, into court, that's probably what you would call it. And, and that is something that we struggle with when we, and we tried to find a balance between a kind of um, legal case standard for fraud or, or what we were kind of internally calling fraud light and just a kind of, I think that my uh, college lied to me. And I don't have any evidence of that other than what I think I remember hearing three or four years ago when I signed up for classes. You know, it's hard, right? It, it, it's hard to kind of thread that needle there. And, you know, frankly, the administrations have a different approach to that. The Biden administration which I guess is the most important rule now, because really the current rule, the one that's going to become effective in a month, really just kind of abrogates the previous rules, especially on the borrower side. They began the negotiated rulemaking on borrower defense issues with a very simple plan. And that plan was to make it more borrower friendly. That's what they were interested in. They wanted to streamline the process for borrowers so that they could get to relief faster than the previous rules. And the reality is that there is a, I mean, I, this isn't a legal term, but there is a ridiculous backlog of claims at the department, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of claims that are just kind of waiting to be adjudicated. And obviously the Biden administration has taken steps outside of the borrower defense process internally to remove some of those claims and adjudicate those claims in a kind of 
sweeping action to get rid of them as quickly as possible. But the thing that kind of gets me, and you know, as a, a former regulator, the thing that kind of concerns me is that there are elements of the new rule that even if the current backlog of claims could be wiped out in a single act, and just assuming that that's even possible, there are things in this new rule that are going to lead to a large backlog of claims that the department is not going to be able to adjudicate in a timely fashion, right? And the thing that I think about with regards to that concern, strictly from an administrative perspective, so that we're not just kind of back to where we are now in you know, five years or whatever it is, is the, the group claim process and the third-party requester process. And, you know, as I said, the Biden rule and the Obama administration rule are not the same rule. It's not just a, a resurrection. It is an evolution. And the thing that kind of separates it, in my mind, in the most significant way, is this third-party requester element. The department originally in the negotiations kicked around this idea that it wouldn't be just borrowers that could file claims or the department, because obviously the department can start borrower defense claims as well. We can talk about the basis for that in a minute. But they also kicked around this idea of third-party requesters, i.e. non-federal government agents like the department or borrowers themselves filing claims on behalf of borrowers. And it seemed like something that the department was going to go for with regards to state agencies. So when I say state agencies, what do I mean? Primarily, what we're talking about is state attorney generals. And we know from communications that have been made public from the department and some of the things that they have said out in the open that the department is already working with state AGs on borrower issues, whether that means filing borrower defense claims. I, I don't think it's, 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 it's obvious that that's what it means, but there is coordination that's going on with state AGs. So state AGs are included. State oversight entities would be able to file group borrower defense claims. State agencies responsible for a, approving education institutions within the state, and then a kind of catch-all regulatory agencies with state authority. That was something that the department kind of started the conversation with. There were negotiators who also thought that non-state entities should be included in third-party requesters. These were primarily negotiators from the legal aid organizations, the consumer protection organizations. Those are nonprofit, mostly attorneys who file cases on behalf of consumers who believe that they were wronged in some sort of transaction, you know, whether it's in the higher education industry or in other industries as well. And initially, the department didn't go for it. They thought, no, 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 that's probably going too far. We're, we're not going to do that. But between the NPRM, which is the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, which is kind of like the first step in the publication of a borrowed defense rule, and the final rule, the department changed their mind and said, in fact, they were going to allow 
legal assistance organizations to file claims on behalf of borrowers. And that opens up an entirely new kind of avenue of claims. And when you think about all of the group claims from state agencies and then all of the group claims from these legal assistance organizations, you know, you, you could very well be looking at a, a true backlog of claims, even if we were able to clear out those that already exist. I'm afraid that we're going to kind of, you know, repeat history here. There's a few things to work with, with everything that you just said that are incredibly alarming. You talk about the group claims. So claims will be reviewed by the department as a group rather than individually. There's a presumption of merit when the claim is filed. In many cases, it will not be the students themselves who are filing the claims. It will be a third-party entity. Everyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows there are individuals and groups out there that wake up every day thinking about how they can put for-profit higher education institutions out of business. They just have an ideological disagreement with the idea that for-profit schools exist, and they have made it their mission to make it as difficult as possible for them to operate and make the regulatory structure so onerous that it just makes it impossible for them to continue. So you're going to have these groups going out there. And as you have pointed out in other forums, I've heard you speak and write about this. The student in the beginning doesn't even have to be aware that the claim has been filed on their behalf. They will be asked after the fact, do you want to go forward with this? Do do we have your consent? But when you're presented with the opportunity, hey, do you want to get your loan repaid? Who's going to say no to that? So you're going to have these third-party organizations with a strong chip on their shoulder, a, a bias against the sector that we represent. They're going to file these claims. They're going to be reviewed as a group. And one of the examples I've heard of how this could work with regard to the ambiguous definition of misrepresentation, the way things could be worded on a website, certainly if, if there's legitimate misrepresentation by a recruiter and things like that, that is absolutely something that, that should not be allowed. But something as simple as, let's say, there's a tour going on for prospective students And one of the students that they're interacting with during the tour says, oh, this is a great program. Everyone gets jobs. It's just so life-changing. I've had such a good experience. That is the type of thing that they could bring forward and say, I I was told that everyone got jobs. Now, the person who said that was not, you know, necessarily a position of authority and, and whatnot. And then now you have borrower defense claims. And then on top of all this, you talk about the backlog. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a mechanism in the Biden rule that says after a claim has been pending for a period of time, it is presumed to have merit and it is approved if they don't get around to adjudicating that claim by a certain period of time. So if they're overwhelmed with claims, they can't get to them, then they're adjudicated as having merit, which is incredibly uh, harmful, obviously, for institutions and and just really an unbelievable part of the rule that they're they're creating a backlog that's going to result in loans probably not being adjudicated by that deadline and then just forgiven without even a review. Is that, did I characterize that correctly? 
Yeah, that's right, Jason. And what I would add as well is that any claims that are currently pending on July 1 are going to get the Biden rule treatment. So even if you filed your claim, let's say last year, when the Trump administration rule was still enforced, if it is pending on July 1, then you get Biden administration rule treatment. So it kind of is, like I said, it, it abrogates the other rules in its, in its passage. And, and a, a couple of things in response to, to what you said. While I agree with you that there are organizations that I think meet the characteristics that you outlined, you know, one of the things that I noticed, because I, I poured over the, you know, I wrote a number of comments to the uh, notice of proposed rulemaking, poured over the final rule. And, and, I, and I find that when I read these rules, that it's so convoluted and they're so long that you kind of look for moments of clarity within the rule. And a lot of where I find that clarity can be found is not necessarily in the preamble to the rule. And for those of you who don't know, that's where the rule is essentially explained to the audience. But in fact, in a, in a different rule that isn't written by attorneys, by and large, and that's called the regulatory impact analysis, which is essentially an explanation of the rule written by what amounts to an accountant. So it's like very, very short and very clear and gets right to the point, lots of numbers in it, which is, I think, why people don't read it. But, you know, what I ended up finding, and I was really kind of surprised by this and, and made sure that my math was correct with a colleague, the regulatory impact analysis states that between 2015 and June of last year, the department had received 554,000 bar defense claims. And then the department does something kind of weird. It says, you know, three quarters of them are from proprietary institutions and only 5% are from public institutions. And then it just kind of moves on. And what I found kind of interesting about that, and I think this is the genesis of the article that I wrote for Inside Higher Ed, is that there's kind of an unspoken number of claims in that 554,000. And that is claims against private nonprofit institutions. And you figure that number is about, it's a little over 100,000 claims. And, and look, 100,000 is, is just a fraction of the 554,000, but it's nothing to sneeze at. It's a significant number of claims against private institutions. And here you have this rule essentially designed for what the department sometimes calls uh, predatory institutions that just happen to be proprietary, that you have 100,000 claims where that characteristic or that characterization doesn't apply. So one has to wonder where do those 100,000 claims, how do they get treated, right? Why are we not talking about those? And one of the things that I, you know, have spoken to colleagues both at the firm and at the department and at, at other law firms as well is that a lot of us see bar defense as the new frontier for regulatory enforcement, not necessarily against proprietary institutions. 
but against nonprofit institutions. You see all of the news stories from time to time. This institution fudged its rankings numbers. This institution fudged its placement numbers. This one fudged its enrollment numbers. And you think to yourself, you know, as an attorney who, you know, kind of thinks a lot about bar defense, are, are these bar defense claims? And, and, and frankly, looking at the standards, whether it's substantial misrepresentation, omission, or the new, right, aggressive and deceptive recruitment, you, know, you were kind of just, you were getting at that a little earlier. The answer is yes. The answer is yes, those would be bar defense claims. And then, you know, for many years since the passage of the rule, the refrain has been, well, the administration is never going to take action against a nonprofit institution. They're not going to do it. It's a kind of favored status. They believe, and they have actually said before, they said it in the NPRM, they said it in the 2016 rule that highly selective nonprofit institutions have value in and of themselves. Interestingly, that language isn't found in the 2022 bar defense rule. The Biden administration final rule doesn't have that language in it. It causes you to wonder about what the future holds for bar defense enforcement, especially since, and this is, I think, the kicker, the claims aren't going to come from the department. Even if the department has kind of favored status for these institutions that they deem valuable, just assuming that for a second. That doesn't say anything about state AGs. It doesn't say anything about any of the regulatory agencies at the state level. It doesn't have anything to say about the consumer protection organizations, which over the past few years have not you know, specifically targeted, but have taken actions against nonprofit and even public institutions who they feel are presenting misrepresentations to the students or you know, omitting certain important facts about the program. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, when I talk to my colleagues, we say, look, we're kind of lone wolf on these issues. But when we talk to our, even our nonprofit clients, we say, look, you, you got to start taking borrowed defense seriously. And oftentimes the refrain back to us is what's borrowed defense? What's that? You know, you, you get 10 claims for, you know, for borrowed defense and they think it's like no big deal. Like, oh, OK, well, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I, 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 I wonder about that. I wonder about what the future of borrowed defense holds because this could be like so many things in our environment nowadays, and I think you'll agree with this, Jason, it, it could get politicized. You know, I, I can imagine a state AG who's concerned about quote-unquote woke institutions that, you know, he decides to weaponize or she decides to weaponize the borrowed defense process. You know, that's what that's what this rule kind of engenders. Like that, that's a that's a real possibility and certainly goes far beyond what either the Obama administration or the Trump administration's intentions were for borrowed defense. And that's exactly the point that I wanted this conversation to evolve to, you know, and, and as we begin to close, uh, we've had a very difficult time getting the nonprofit institutions and their association representatives in Washington, and certainly the public institutions, we've had a hard time getting them interested in this issue. And we've made the same case that you did. You, know, you look at these 
schools, I won't name them, but people know very high profile cases of doctoring outcomes for U.S. news rankings. Uh, one of the more prominent schools in the Northeast, you know, the, the somebody went to jail over that and then there was a fine involved. That kind of thing happens. And again, we're talking about a very ambiguous definition of misrepresentation. I think what I get from the people that we have this conversation with, and maybe you hear the same is, even if these claims are filed, maybe you have an adversarial, they would classify as a, you know, a right wing, you know, anti-woke attorney general, let's say a governor DeSantis, whoever it might be, you, you look at what's happening in Florida, you could very easily envision it happening. I think the backstop currently for a lot of these nonprofit and public schools is, well, the department under President Biden is not going to adjudicate them favorably. Those those claims are not going to be accepted. Perhaps that's the case, but eventually you're going to have a different administration with a different point of view. And let's say instead of Governor DeSantis, you have a President DeSantis or somebody like, you know, President Tim Scott, whoever it might be in the future may have a very different opinion of how those claims should be adjudicated and, and, and what constitutes misrepresentation for a nonprofit or even a public school. And when you think about the future and moving forward and, and the ambiguous way that the rule is written, it does open the door for very substantial involvement for people who have a political interest in taking on that side of the higher education sector as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jason. And, and I'll add one thing. To this. In fact, I'll add two things. First off, what I would add is that the borrowed defense rule is not just about the borrowed defense rule because to the Biden administration's credit, they have intertwined and interlocked all of these rules that they are revising together. So borrowed defense is not just about borrowed defense claims. It becomes a financial responsibility issue. And then it becomes all a certification issue and an administrative capability issue. And it, it, it kind of all kind of links together. And once the, the dominoes begin to fall, the way that they have set up these rules is that it isn't just about a single domino called bar defense. That's the, that's the first thing that I would say. And, and for those who think that the a Biden administration, or for that matter, any Democrat administration would never go after, you know, nonprofit or, or private nonprofit institutions, I am not going to say that, look, they're wrong or they're right. I would simply point their attention to the recently published financial value transparency rule as part of the gainful employment rulemaking, which obviously gainful employment targets proprietary institutions and, and a couple of programs at nonprofits, right? But the financial value transparency or low financial value regulations that are being promulgated, those apply to all institutions. And it's going to require, if it goes through as it's proposed, I, I don't know because we're still early in the process, that's going to require student disclosures. The student's going to have to sign a piece of paper that says, I'm aware that this program at such and such private nonprofit institution is a high debt, low earnings program. Now, that isn't gainful employment. We're going to come to close your school down. I, I get that. It's not the same. But that looks like targeting to me, right? That looks like, wow, we haven't done that kind of thing before where, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Harvard is going to have to say, 
yeah, this is a great program, but you got to sign this piece of paper that says X, Y, and Z. That's not good, right? That it might not be good information that they want their students to kind of have front and center. Our guest today has been Jonathan Hellwink. He is one of the nation's foremost experts on this issue of borrower defense to repayment. He's currently an attorney at the Dwayne Morris Law Firm specializing in higher education, and he is a former senior official at the U.S. Department of Education. Jonathan, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED. That's at C-E-C-U-E-D. Thank you for listening.